Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you are listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Really my favorite station. Okay, so before we get started, we are, uh, we're, we're taping live. Many, many people listen to this show during a podcast, but I have to give a round of applause, first of all, to those who are up so late in the United States listening in. I actually, uh, there's a list, I don't have it in front of me, of I think Minnesota is listening in and Texas is listening in and different places. So it really does make a difference. Canada is with us this morning. Canada, what would we do without you? The nice people. Um, Israel, Boketover, it's Israel. Mamash, the Boker Tov. Boker Malay, Malay, in Tikvavishemesh. Okay, lots of hope, lots of sun, and we hope for good things in our little corner of the world. Jamaica is listening in with us. Very, very nice. And of course, my favorite second home, South Africa. Later on, someone else listening in will pump in it, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pipe in and let you know. But it really does make a difference knowing that you are out there. Let me ask you something. Is anybody listening to the show awaiting Shabbos more than I am this morning? Does anybody need Shabbos more than I do today? Uh, years ago, I, I know that I've told this story. Um, I actually filled out a form recently, and I found that I think we've been doing this show since 2017, uh, something like 270, 280 shows, which is very, very exciting. And um, I remember years ago telling the story about my good friend, Rachel, who, when she was going to graduate school in Manhattan, she took an apartment, a one-bedroom, a studio, somewhere on the Lower East Side. And she ran into a neighbor who said, oh, any weekend plans? Because Rachel, at the time, was a young single woman. And she explained, well, I'm, you know, Sabbath observant, and I was invited somewhere for the Sabbath dinner, for Shabbos dinner. And the neighbor said, oh, you know these people. These are friends of yours. She goes, no, 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 I don't know who they are. They got my number and they called and they invited me. And the neighbor was just gobsmacked. How could you go somewhere where you don't know the people? And certainly not in Manhattan. And for those of us who live this very Torah blueprint, Torah anchored life, it would seem strange to not feel safe going to someone who invites you for a Shabbos dinner. And um, I'm also reminded, there's a theme here, there's a theme going on, sort of about connectedness and people and the necessity of we, we, one another, are the closest things we actually get to being in the presence of God. And um, years ago, a friend, a very good friend asked me, why is it? You know, I said, I couldn't talk. We were, I think we were Skyping. There was no Zoom in those days. And she said, well, why are you always running off to weddings, to funerals, to shivers, to graduations, to meetings? 
She said that if she want, you know, and this is also another Manhattan friend, if she went to one wedding or one funeral a year, it was like a very, <laughs> a very jam-packed year of the human experience. And, you know, I gave it some thought naturally because I'm very, you know, hard on myself thinking that there was something wrong with me. But then afterwards it dawned that I was part of a community that takes joy in life. Joy in a life that's also peppered with occasional pain. And the greatest joy is being connected to one another. You know, people, again, as I, as I said, I believe that people represent the closest we can get to God in this life by surrounding ourselves with other holy, growing, hopefully hanging on to a moral thread kind of human beings. And through the, uh, these connections to one another, to those listening in from the U.S., from Israel, from Jamaica, from Canada, from South Africa, and from wherever, we experience passion. We experience intimacy, humor, vulnerability, and the other wonderful elements of this glorious life that we have been so blessed to have been granted if I'm waxing a tad emotional today, I must tell you, this week, <laughs> this week, if it were written in a novel, somebody would say, the agent would say, no, lighten it up. Nobody has that much going on in one week. But those of you who are listening in, the friends I haven't met yet can all raise your hand and say, oh, no, we know what she's talking about. Because this week was was filled with a range of human connectedness. I had a wedding from work, my husband's work. Didn't know the people. There was time with grandchildren, a visit. And then during the visit, a very aggravating Zoom call with siblings about the situation with my mother, who is now in the hospital. Last week after the show, I spent the day attending to an ailing friend who just needed company. And suddenly, unexpectedly, she died. And her funeral was last night. Not expected. I attended an incredible Torah class yesterday that fed my very, well, I would say slightly bereft soul. Followed with a drive to the ocean for two hours yesterday. And last night I began preparing for Shabbos before collapsing into bed. Sometimes it does feel like too much. But just like that shoemaker that we speak about who works late into the night by the light of a flickering candle, as the candle burns, there is work to be done. As long as the candle is flickering, there is life to be lived, relationships to be discovered and forged. We were built in his image, and he never tires nor sleeps. Yeah, there's sadness. But there is always the dawn. When we look beyond ourselves, we can see that myriad opportunity exists to reach beyond ourselves, stretch a muscle or two, and apply our energies, life force, and either quivering or ironclad faith in God to work. No to toil at making the world a place that embraces both man 
and a better satisfied will of Hashem. Yeah, she's waxing this morning. Came across a Turkish proverb, which anybody who wants, write to me, Andrea, at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I'll be happy to send you this proverb. It applies to so much. It says, the forest was shrinking, but the trees kept voting for the axe. For the axe was clever and convinced the trees that because his handle was made of wood, he was one of them. Let's give that some thought. A lot of Torah this week, although we have a few uh, off the Torah, off the Torah path stuff. But I do want to put in our minds that today we're going to be talking a lot about Yaakov, Jacob. And Jacob is the symbol of truth in Torah in the Jewish tradition. And he never loses sight of his goal of nation building and creating unity out of the diversity of a large family and definitely differing personalities. That is what is meant by the truth of Yaakov. He's true to his identity, refusing to remodel himself after his father-in-law or the general society of Haran. Truth, truth, true to his self-identity, his family's traditions, his faith. And he remains eternally true to his goal of influencing all of humanity through his family and teachings. There can be no greater expression of truth, consistently living a moral life and expressing that truth in daily living in so-called ordinary behavior. Anything we do has a Torah aspect. Anything we do the Torah is not a list of rule book, a guidebook, like my Amana, my Amana step-by-step how to install my refrigerator or washing machine thing um, guide. You know, there are a lot of movements and a lot of ideologies that walk the Jewish street today and that have kind of replaced those previously failed ideas and programs that came before us. The test of longevity and true success remains the same today as it has always been in the time of Yaakov. Are we remaining true to our traditions and the visions of our father Yaakov? This is the ultimate arbiter of his vision of us, of the life we should be living. Everything modern will always become obsolete Temporary popularity, faddishness, it recedes into the absurd dustbin of failed ideas. I love it. That's a line from Rabbi Wine. Judaism doesn't oppose change and progress, but above all, it is necessary to remain true to one's tradition. I think about how Avraham is connected to the Shacharit prayer, the dawn, everything was possible. Yitzchak is the Mincha prayer, the middle of the day, there's brightness and there's darkness. And then there's Yaakov, who is Ma'ariv. When all is dark, the one thing he keeps is his faith. My name's Andrea. Let's continue on the other side.
And <laughs> forgive me, we are back. Don't forgive me for being back. Forgive me for being such a so sloppy at the second enter, entry. I just realized something. I'm going to share something with you that you may not know. When you put an electric heater in a room and the room does not warm up according to, well, according to the way it's supposed to go, check and see if you turned it on. Okay, somehow they just insist, so bossy. You have to turn it on. There is Torah everywhere. Yes, there is. Torah can be found. It doesn't separate. Again, as I said, it doesn't sit on a shelf along with Lahavdil, the New Testament, along with um, the Bhagavad Gita, along with the Quran. The Torah is a blueprint for our DNA, our life. We ingest it, we live it, we breathe it. Where is she going with this? Let me tell you something. We've all heard of Richard Branson. I have to tell you, I don't know much about Richard Branson. I just want to know if that's his real hair color as somebody who deals with hair every day. Um, but Richard Branson did not know that he recently, I think it was in Inc. Magazine, I-N-C period, like incorporated. Anybody who wants me to send them the originals of any of these articles, just send me a note, Andrea, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Happy to send you the link. Anyway, Richard Branson gives us a mini Devar Torah today without probably knowing it. He says in Inc. Magazine that what he identifies what he believes separates great leaders from the pack. And he says it really comes down to one word. And I, you know, before I went, I covered the article and I said, what's that one word? Oh, I bet that word is integrity. That word has to be integrity. I don't think integrity or accountability exists in Torah, but that's the word that I was wrong. One of the factors, according to Branson, behind ineffective leadership is that a, per a person's inability to display the strength of the most exceptional leaders and that is called vulnerability. There's immense power in being openly vulnerable. It allows a leader to emotionally connect with employees. And when employees connect above the neck with their leaders, they will walk through walls for them. I have to tell you, I thought about this so much. I think so much when we're going to get to the story of Moshe Rabbeinu and his father-in-law, Yitro, telling him, you know, he needs to divvy up the work. He cannot be the leader of everybody. And we see this vulnerability. We see Hashem telling Avraham, listen to your wife. Don't, and it, just example after example, Richard Branson did not create the wheel, but his acknowledgement, instead of saying, I'm so brilliant, that's why I'm such a multi-quazillionaire. Instead, he says, transparency, straightforwardness and simplicity are true to the virgin way of doing business. Well, I would say it's to the Torah way of business. So he comes to three ways to increase the practice of vulnerability. And I just, I need to interject, you know, I'm working from text here, <laughs> work from text a lot, but you know, one of the things that I went through a period with, with my children, and I'm speaking very, very intimately here, where a lot of people just tell other people what they want to hear. The idea of Shalom Bias, the peaceful home, 
if it's not built on, again, integrity, if it's not built on honesty, if it's not built on transparency, it's not a peaceful home. It's artificial. And people used to say, what are the three most important words in the world? And of course, you know, all the pundits say, I love you. But it's not. There are other, and I'd be curious to what you think the three. I have two other sets of three word sentences, which I think are more important than I love you. One is, I don't know. Crazy. We live in a world where we have to know everything. Have to know. If you don't know, you're a failure. I don't know. And the other sentence that I like very much is, tell me more. And I think with those two three-word sentences, the world can become a much kinder place. So here are Branson's ways, three ways to increase the practice of vulnerability. And understand, everything is applicable to Torah. One, be willing to ask for help. Vulnerable leaders have no qualms about not knowing everything or having all the answers. They don't pretend to be the expert they leverage the skills of their knowledge. They leverage the skills of their knowledge workers on the front lines and ask for their help. When you start asking your employees for help, a funny thing happens. They'll want to step up and help, and it spreads outwardly. Your workforce loyalty and commitment will rise. My goodness, can't we change this? Ask your children for help. Ask your partner for help. Ask your sisters, your brothers, your neighbors. Imagine what people won't do for one another. Number two, share personal stories about making mistakes. That's my forte on a personal level. Come over here one evening, pour a glass of wine, and <laughs> strap on your seatbelt. Okay, you'll hear mistakes after mistakes. Personal stories let people know that you are human and imperfect, just like the rest of them. You know, as a grandmother, when I think of grandchildren saying, tell me more, grandma, tell me the time about, and they just listen, list, faux pas after faux pas, and they love it. They love seeing the vulnerability of the person that they most respect in the world. And then the third, according to Branson, hmm, wonder what Torah he was reading. Mine must have been mine. Commit to your promises. Failure to 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 honor your word and follow through on promises may lead to people questioning your integrity or reliability for example ever trust a person who lets you down a number of times it's usually a reflection of character i think it was the famous poet maya angelo who said when someone shows you who they are believe them Vulnerable and authentic leaders do what they say they're going to do. It's a matter of integrity. Their word means something to them, and they don't take it lightly. Um, yeah, I just wanted to share that. Okay, also in today's news is something that had me gasping. A story that on other days I might have just passed up, but I thought to myself, how spoiled we are. Apparently, Stowaways, three men, Nigerians, I believe they were, they were stowed away on a ship to the Canary Islands from Nigeria. It was an 11-day voyage. Where did they hide out? 
not in a safe room, not in an engine room. These three men literally sat on the rudder of the ship. The photos are terrifying and their feet are dangling just inches above the water behind this massive hull. The ship, okay, according to this, it left Lagos, Nigeria. We sometimes have Nigerians listening in. Send me a note if you know about this story. I'd like to know how it was covered by you. Covered 2,000 miles on an 11-day journey um, to the Spanish territory off off of Northwest Africa. Anyway, these men lived. They didn't fall off. I don't know. There is no talking about what they ate. They were treated for dehydration and hypothermia uh, during this perilous trip. What does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with any of us? I don't have enough clothes in my closet. The peaches in the supermarket looked a little bruised out of season. My daughter didn't call me enough or send me pictures of the children painting the painting a project. These three men were willing to risk their lives. How many of us are called upon to do this? I just found the whole story frightening and indeed humbling and um, worth thinking about. Okay, in the last two minutes before we go off, Everybody give a smile. Apparently, uh, this came out of not a Sutta hospital, but a Sutta prima. Wine and tea consumption can slow memory loss. This is the newest study. Um, I'm working hard at this, okay, to prove it true. People, according to this study, people who ate the highest amounts of food with camphorol, don't ask me to repeat that three times fast, uh, showed showed um, a decade slower rate of cognitive decline compared to those who ate fewest. If you need another reason to add a glass of wine to your nightly ritual, not the morning ritual, okay? You're still friends of Andrea. This could be it. Eating more flavanols, antioxidants common in wine, tea, and many vegetables and fruits, though, what a surprise, may may slow your rate of memory loss, according to this new study. Let's ignore the vegetable part and let's just say goodbye dementia. Pop the cork. I couldn't get over this. That people were divided into groups based on their daily intake. Anyway, let us just know that despite the noted pros, the research team noted that although the study shows an association between higher amounts of dietary flavanols and slower cognitive decline, it doesn't prove (laughs) that it directly causes a slower rate of the decline. Does that make any episode? The only thing that makes sense to me is I have to finish off the bottle of wine that I opened last night. I think that is very important. Okay, when we come back, we're going to go into Torah. Um, I do think I need to celebrate just a few special moments in Israel this past week. And my name's Andrea. See you on the other side.
And we're back. Andrea Simintov, Pull Up a Chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I say it all the time, but I really mean it. Um, we are going to go into our Devar Torah section. One thing that kind of jumped out at me, um, you know, I had all this stuff about great things going on in the medical front, on the technological front this week in Israel, but... Um, I think I need to commit again to my blog to posting that stuff. Something that you might have found interesting, those of you listening in from America, I don't, I'm trying to think. I was in a Walmart once. I know there's a lot of Walmart jokes, like the difference between Walmart and Target, and people dressed really badly or not dressed at all really badly. Um, but apparently, on the Walmart. Anybody knows what I'm about to speak about? There was a Walmart online uh, catalog that was advertising for $40 a piece. Well, they were clearly talesim, Jewish prayer shawls, but they were sold as elegant, elegant sunscreen scarves. And of course, they were printed, not of course, but we know the source. The source came from Messianic uh, Messianic Jews because they were printed with Bible verses and fish imagery. Uh, that seems to be something that is particular to the Messianic movements. And um, so on TikTok, very funny, there's Ilan Kogan, who is a uh, Orthodox rabbinical student. <laughs> he said, you know, why wear a talus to shul when you can wear the very real product from Walmart? And, um, you know, once you get past the humor of it, these elegant sunscreen scarves, block shawl scarf, beach shawl, towel clothing accessory, accessories for Jewish women in blue. Um, it's just even madness. But his post, this Rabbi Ilan, his post was one of several calling attention to the product listed on their website with reactions ranging from curiosity. I have so many questions um, to outrage from the watchdog group. <clears throat> I don't think I've ever heard of this group. It's called Stop Antisemitism. And by Tuesday afternoon, Walmart had removed the item, much to their credit, which had been listed for $40.99, as well as a second with a similar name from a different seller that had been available for the cut rate price of, I'm sorry, $14.49. And Walmart's response to the concern was, Walmart has a robust trust and safety program, which actively works to prevent items such as these from being sold on the site. After reviewing these items have been reviewed. And apparently they had other products over the years I, I didn't know about this. They had Schindler's List leggings with scenes from the uh, Holocaust film. And um, these elegant sunscreen scarves reflect the oddities of merchandising. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm talking to you, those of us living in Israel. I don't know what communities you're living in. I live in southeast Jerusalem, and we are absolutely under siege i can't say it in any other way from missionaries filling our mailboxes approaching our children both on the streets and on the buses um walking around be trying to befriend us in restaurants and i don't know what all of this appropriation is about and i don't know what to do and i know that there are certainly 
very holy people who are trying to address this here. But you know what? There are people who have what we call a pintily yid. It's that little flame of Judaism burning inside of them, maybe from a long deceased grandparent. And they can come across something like this, that is where missionaries will infiltrate American marketing and it will speak to that little burning place of question. I beg anybody listening to this show, if you do not know where to get authentic answers to your burning questions, you know what? I take it upon myself here and any of the hosts here at Israel News Talk Radio, but certainly write to me and I will try to direct you in a, I certainly will not pretend to be a rabbi or a pundit or an advisor, but I might be able to get you honest, Torah-based, and indeed kosher responses to your burgeoning questions. Don't count on Walmart and don't count on your neighboring messianics. Okay. Ho! So, <clears throat> this week's Torah portion. I think I'm pulling away from the mic. I'm getting there. I got my I got my little missionary dig in there. Notice that? I always manage to do that. I did it. I did it. Okay. So, this week's portion is called Vayetze. Vayetze. And Rabbi um, Rabbi Alexander Zusia Friedman, in his anthology, I quote this all the time, it's, a, it's an anthology of biblical commentaries called Wellsprings of Torah. He quotes the Bikorea Viv to the effect that man is humble, that is, he keeps his feet on the ground. If he keeps his feet on the ground, he will reach into the heavens and deserve having Hashem stand beside him. This is, of course, the Torah portion of the latter. So two instances, let me see, I need something. My text here is so small. I don't know what I was doing when I was printing it out. Okay, so there are two very important um, examples in this week's Porsche of what we call a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name. You know, one of them involves the episode where Lavan, the father of Leah and Rachel, he substituted Leah for Rachel on what should have been Rachel or Rachel, her wedding day, her wedding night to Yaakov. Yaakov knew, he knew that Lavan was deceitful and he couldn't be trusted. And so therefore he had given Rachel a prearranged sign to assure that such a change would not be made because, of course, and also culturally, Leah was the older sister, and traditionally the older sister would marry before the younger. However, when Rachel realized that her father was indeed acting duplicitously and substituting Leah in her stead, she gave the sign that Yaakov had given her to her sister all in the hope that her sister Leah would not face humiliation. Rabbi Yehuda Zev Siegel in his Sefer, Inspiration and Insight, explains that Rachel was giving up. She was giving up at the time much more than marriage to a righteous husband, which that itself could have sent her into, into the depths of despair. She knew that Yaakov was going to continue that spiritual legacy of both Avraham and Yitzchak, and that his descendants would carry out God's will in the world. Rachel, 
at that moment was totally unaware that she would also marry Yaakov. And instead, she was relinquishing this privilege of being a mother to Klal Yisrael, to the community of Israel. And in addition, the sages tell us that by allowing Leah to marry Yaakov, she left open the very possibility of her being forced to marry the wicked Esav. Rachel's decision, it was only influenced by one factor, namely, and listen closely, my friends, the shame, the busha, the embarrassment that would befall her sister should her father's plan be revealed. Um, the Gemara states, better that a person let himself be hurled into a furnace than shame his friend in public. This is a very painful parsha for me personally, I must tell you. Rachel's personal sacrifice was the epitome of Kiddush Hashem sanctifying God's name. And of course, the second incident, um, I don't know, a lot of people seem to pass over this one. It involves Ruvain. Um, I think it's Reuben in, Hebrew, in English. Reuven, who had lost his birthright to Yosef for having defiled his father's couch. Okay, just read the, you know, read the Torah again. Yet when Yosef's brothers were planning to kill him, it was Reuven, Reuven, who had been so vulnerable. He saved Yosef's, Joseph's life by convincing the other brothers to throw themselves into a pit instead, uh, to throw him into the pit. Reuven had to overcome feelings of jealousy and anger over losing his birthright to Yosef. Not only that, Reuven might have regained that birthright had Yosef been killed. It could have been a good thing for him politically. Nevertheless, Reuven was guided by the belief that it was by the will of Hashem to keep Yosef alive. His actions also exemplify the principle of, again, memorize the phrase, Kiddush Hashem. This, this concept of what we say is anivut, humility, humbleness, is learned from the incident when Yaakov spends the night in Betel. I mention Betel often. According to the events that are chronicled in the Torah, Quote, Yaakov took the stones of the place and made of them a pillow. So Rashi explains that he made them into a kind of a, a gutter, like, a, like a, a, protect, a protective circle around his head, because he was afraid of wild animals. So Rabbi Miller asks on this Rashi, let, you know, let, let's use some common sense. If Yaakov really feared the wild animals, he must have known that his head isn't going to protect the rest of his body, which remained defenseless and open to animal attack. But on the other hand, here's where that imuna, that faith comes in. If he trusted wholeheartedly in Hashem to protect him from the animals, so why did he need to set up stones in the first place? So this is where Rabbi Miller actually answers. He says, Yaakov had complete faith in Hashem's protection. However, because of his humility, he wanted a kind of blunt, I can't think of a better word, uh, that full impact of the miracle that Hashem performed on his behalf to take some action on his part. We call it in Hebrew, hishtadlus, um, hishtadlus, personal um 
personal intervention, personal participation um, in, in, in God's protection and facing the miracles that God performs on our behalf. Yaakov had to take some action on his part and not rely solely on God's mercy. We understand this. We learn here to guard ourselves from false vanity and pride. Finally, a very simple, a profound lesson in personal development can be drawn from Yaakov's dream. We see this ladder. The ladder has its feet on the ground. And somehow, how do you have a ladder sticking up in the air and not anchored to anything? Well, of course it's anchored. It's anchored to heaven, as explained beautifully by the Chafetz Chaim in Torah's Habayit, um, chapter 10, if you're curious. The ladder that Yaakov saw in his dream symbolizes the situation of every person in this world, every one of us, whether Jewish or not Jewish. There are only two actions we can take on a ladder. You can either climb from the bottom to the top or come from the top down. You cannot hang out on those rungs for any given le- you know, length of time. What's our challenge? To constantly climb the spiritual ladder and not lower ourselves. When a person climbs to lofty heights, he not only feels, we feel that progress. We feel it in our thighs and we feel it in our belly and we feel it in our heart. And we get great satisfaction that comes along with each step. Not only that, every step provides us with the motivation to continue climbing to even greater levels of spirituality. I Just all of us, may we all climb that ladder and, and, and hopefully hasten the coming of Moshiach in our days. Now, um, I just love that, you know, that it's also, it goes back, excuse me, I'm getting again off text. You just know when I'm on text, off text, you know, the steps to the Aron, to the Ark, the Holy Ark in the base Hamigdash, the Holy Temple, it wasn't steps going up. The Kohanim, the Kohen Gadol, the, the high priest did not climb steps from the bottom to get up to the Ark. If you look very carefully at biblical art, you will notice that it is a ramp because a ramp similarly to a ladder goes up and it goes down. You cannot hang out on that angle for any length of time. Hanging out, you will descend. So one must force himself to climb up. Yaakov's life, it was never easy. His childhood, well, it was marred by unrelenting need to deal with Esav. Esav lived to control. Esav needed to own. He needed to use, use people, use things, use situations. His favorite tool was duplicity. And yet, he was kind of his father's favorite. Yitzhak was dedicated to turning Esav his oldest son, I don't know how many of you listening in are parents. I, I suspect many of us. And perhaps this will speak with you the way it spoke to me. You know, he was determined to turn his oldest son into something he could never be. Someone who lived for God and not for himself alone. The basic rule that touches every aspect of every relationship is, what's the rule? The more you give, the more you love. 
um, Rabbi Rabbi Dessler, Eliyahu Dessler, Mechtav Me Eliyahu, Strive for Truth, speaks exactly of this point in his first volume. Yitzchak loved Esav because he gave him so much. He gave him so much time. He gave him so much heart. Everything a father could give. He would hear Esav kind of spin. He would hear his spin on halacha, on Jewish law, and think, wow, today we're making some progress. He would see his efforts at honoring his father as an opening to general spiritual movement. I I don't know how I would feel if I were Yaakov. I struggle enough being Andrea. We, We don't know how Yaakov felt. We do know that he could not have been at ease with the step he had to take on, you know, fooling his father. The enormous pain of misrepresenting himself to Yitzchak by presenting himself as Esav to prevent Esav from receiving the brachot, the blessings that would be his tool in destroying everything that Avraham and Yitzchak had built. It was necessary and his disguising himself was closer to the truth in his being far more able to be the next link in the line of forefathers than letting Yitzchak think that Esav was really in the running for being a spiritual leader. Emes, the truth, it isn't always easy. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, he tells a story in Rabbi Hanoch Teller's book. And if you don't know who Rabbi Teller is, Google him and order some of his books. And one of his books, um, Above the Bottom Line. And the story has Rabbi Kamenetsky in a jewelry store. And he asked the owner to weigh an object he was given as a present by his community. Um, I actually got this story, I think, by Rebetzin Tsipora uh, Heller. Um, anyway, so this is all being handed from me to, to you to you. Anyway, the story has him in this jewelry store, and he's asking the owner to weigh an object that he was given as a present by his community. Uh, I think it was a kiddush cup. The owner kind of couldn't control himself, and the words kind of set, came out, and he couldn't stop them. And he said, you know, most people don't have their gifts professionally appraised. They just say thank you. A little dig? Rav Yaakov explained himself, I have to report my income when I pay tax. This includes donations and gifts. Most people would not have a gift weighed so that they could be sure they're giving Uncle Sam <laughs> or or the Israeli Mizrata, Mizrata, whatever it is here in Israel, um, you know, extra donations and gifts. The truth is that living in a country, paying tax, owing possessions is all part of a bigger picture. We're too close to the picture to see the details. And we have a normal but disturbing tendency to... Um, to just see rocks honestly and without prejudice while they're only rocks they're separate they're not the whole when we go back to yakov those 12 stones they united into one stone 
The number 12, I love this. It's not random. It represents the 12 different ways of uh, rearranging the letters of God's name. The number is also very easily divisible. And it also relates to, I can't believe Andrea is going to say this, the constellations in the zodiac. In earlier times, people knew the art. We knew the art of using astronomy in a holy fashion to read the map of emerging realities. It refers to the 12 tribes. Each of those 12 tribes was born in a different month under a different constellation. What does this tell us? We're all so different. And yet we are all essentially one. All of us represent an aspect, any aspect of the way God wants us to know him through the 12 different ways in which his name can be written. Yaakov could bring up his 12 sons to find their own peace in this great puzzle, this 12-piece puzzle. They were all tzaddikim, they were all holy, and yet they were all very different. In a sense, Yaakov birthed himself by seeing each chapter in his life as part of a whole. The Pasuk, the, 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 the line, calls him an ish tam, a whole or complete man. You know, life is many chapters. You might be able to see them form a whole, or you might be in the process. You might be stuck seeing every piece. Today's day is so important. I can't look at tomorrow. I can't look at yesterday. I have blinders on. I promise you, there's a bigger picture. Just thinking about Yaakov's dream can open some doors. Angels went up. Angels came down. The Hebrew word for angel is malach, which literally means an agent. God's messengers rise. They may have come to you to test you and to offer you an opportunity to find light in dark places. The darkest place of all can be the human heart. The Midrash Tachumah says that the reason Yaakov had to find himself exiled from home, so alone, so bereft, and on the road with no with no clear vision of what would happen next and be learned through the laws concerning someone who kills another person through negligence. He has to leave everything behind him, go into a city of refuge. One second, one second, one second, everybody. I just lost my place and it was important to go into a city of refuge. Yaakov was judged by God as having killed Esau by his negligence. Imagine that cruel, terrible, bad Esau was also a human being who needed consideration. Yaakov shouldn't have given up on him. He could have drawn him close and kept him from digging his hole deeper and deeper. And if you see the entire picture, you never totally give up on anyone. Yaakov's error was that he didn't be, believe in himself enough. His humility left him thinking that this taking care of Asaph 
was beyond him. What can we learn from this? What can we take into Shabbos? What can we bring to our Shabbos table? Perhaps the idea that each of us should let our truth, our reflect, our re- respective truths, see the light in every human, in every person, in every situation. God is always with us, and that means that there is always a spark of truth waiting within each of us. Shabbat Shalom Umevorach. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.